Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He now lives within himself, which is a dangerous place for him to be. But the reality of it is that he's not a strategic thinker, and he's in a moment now, it's, it's perilous. Who knows, we may get to a point where the question is asked, what did the president know and when did his son-in-law tell him? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man whose chief science advisor is Kimberly Guilfoyle of Fox News' morning show, The Five, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. It's hard to find people who think pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords was a good idea, that is, in Trump's own White House. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was against pulling out. Trump's chief economic advisor, Gary Cohn, against it. Idiot son-in-law, yet, Sergey, yet. Trump's daughter, Ivanka, again, against pulling out. And pulling out may not actually mean anything. The Paris Agreement doesn't really bind the U.S. to any specific actions. So Trump could have pursued all his anti-environment, pro-coal, anti-science policies without withdrawing. He could have just slapped an I Heart Pittsburgh bumper sticker on his limousine and called it a day. To think of this as a substantive decision misses the point. To Trump, this is all about political symbolism and sending a message or a series of messages. To the blue-collar workers who voted for me, I'm on your side. To liberals, scientists, polar bears, screw you guys, I won. To European leaders, I can do whatever I want. To his grandchildren, I won't be around to worry about it. So should we get exercised about a policy change that may not have any real consequences? I'll be back to talk with climate whiz Andy Revkin right after these messages. And now a word from Vladimir Putin, who addressed allegations of Russian hacking during the election at an economic forum in St. Petersburg. Of course, uh, hackers, as we know, are going to hack. They will always do this because they are uh, like artists. They will make Art hackers will make some computer hacks. Many hackers will begin to hack in the morning before even their their first meal, their, before their breakfast, they will hack. It is only in their nature to do this. It does not mean that the government has asked them to hack. Does a turtle go into his shell and swim because the government tells him 
to do this? No. He does this because he's a turtle. That is what the hacker does. Our sketch today, What a Hacker Does, was written and performed by Steve Walting. My guest today is Andrew Revkin. He's the senior reporter for climate at ProPublica. Andy, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Jacob. I want to get a little technical about this. What does it actually mean for Trump to pull out of the Paris Accords? I mean, mechanically, what happens? It's complicated. It would take the way he he had kind of a menu of choices that ranged from withdrawing the United States from the underlying framework convention on climate change, the, the foundational pact back from 1992, upon which everything else is built. Yeah. Um, he could have... Uh, withdrawing the signature he the details of what he means by withdrawing still haven't been divulged in the sense that well well under the treaty terms it could take it takes about four years so basically through the course of his administration the first chapter if depending on if there is another one another term um we won't really know what it means fully until 2020, November of 2020. Because the next president could basically reverse his reversal, right? Because this is not a treaty passed by the Senate. And Obama right. made it essentially an executive order because he, he couldn't have gotten it through the Senate, probably. Didn't want to go that route. But for that reason, it just it, it's, it's easy to come in and out, right? Yeah. And, and under the terms of the agreement, uh, there is this time, this time lag. It's designed to be easy in, hard out, <laughs> and that's just part of the terms of the, the agreement. And yeah, this was a whole issue. A lot of the Republicans who have been fighting about this say it should have been take, put to the Senate for ratification. That's close enough to treaty language to justify uh, requiring Senate consent. That's the kind of thing that has weakened so many of the initiatives that Obama tried to pursue on climate from not just the treaty, but the Clean Power Plan. Everything was administrative, executive. He was hamstrung in the sense of building kind of a fragile, but a sophisticated but fragile climate edifice. I've been describing it as sort of like uh, the, the eight years of, well, really it was the second term when he did most of this, but he built a very, uh, very fancy sandcastle <laughs> and then had to leave the beach. <laughs> Seems and, like you know, a, it's like yeah. Seems like kid, an appropriate metaphor. Well, you you know, when you're a kid, you had to leave the beach, and there you left. You did something really cool in the sand, and here come the bullies, and and here comes the rising tide, and of course now with climate change, even more of a rising tide. It was a vulnerable uh, thing, and and the um, treaty as it. I mean, there's so many things here that are puzzling. O'Reilly, when he was still pontificating at Fox early on, said Trump should not withdraw because it. Paris has no real meaning it, because it is soft. And the, the counter-argument, the only counter-argument that I think is salient is that this was this kind of pledge he made in a cartoonish way to his base. That, that's why the whole speech, he paints it kind of as a draconian, top-down, black helicopter style. Uh, they want to take control of our future pact when in, there's nothing about this agreement that has those qualities. Well, I mean, since it's basically an aspirational agreement. I mean, it doesn't have hard consequences for missing the targets, right? Yeah. Well, that was the uh, the great achievement in Paris was um, that it returned this process to where things started way back in 1992 in Rio, which, which was also aspirational. And the world spent all the way from Rio in 1992 through, through Copenhagen in 2009. Everything was 
an effort to create a very traditional 20th century style, contractual style treaty with targets, timetables, penalties. You know, Kyoto Protocol was this instrument in the late 90s that emerged, and, but it was dead on arrival, not just because of the United States, but because of China. But all of, the, all of those instruments and efforts had this antiquated thinking that the climate, the greenhouse gases that are the main influence we're building on the climate system can be regulated away, like you would put a filter on a smokestack to capture more conventional pollution or a catalytic converter in the car exhaust. And it, it was a lot of learning to, to come around to realize that carbon dioxide is different. It's not like, you know, the pollution we grew up with in the 70s and 60s. It's, it's a fundamental byproduct of combustion. It's not like a, a side contaminant. It is what happens when you burn coal or car, any kind of carbon fuel. And, and so that makes it a fundamental um, in synchrony with our economic activity, and you can't just sort of regulate it away. And that, that's why the Clean Air Act was never really a good fit for it either here domestically. And, but it was the only tool in the toolbox for traditional environmentalists. So Paris finally circled away from that to being flexible and to, to, to the recognition that the great thing about it, the, the architecture of Paris, was it was a, framed as a journey. And, you know, with five-year review, with voluntary commitments to do X and reporting periodically and meeting and, and not, not with those elements that were never going to ha- work because the countries of the world, you know, 2005, I quoted Tony Blair, the Montreal climate talks, where he said, no country is going to sacrifice its economy for the sake of this problem. And you know, that was 2005. And, and that's basically what Trump is saying now in, in a more cartoonish way. But it, it's this is the thing about a aspirational treaty. I mean, I, I I get all the things you're saying, but Trump is saying, well, I don't aspire to that. We don't. I don't. I have alternative science. I don't. I don't accept the premises. I don't aspire to that. Aspire to those goals. But other parts of the government, not just state governments and local governments, but other parts of the federal government still do aspire to that. And members of his own cabinet say they aspire to that. So when you have this kind of thing that doesn't have rewards or penalties at the end of it, you know, what does pulling out of it really mean? Does it have any? Well, I know I, I, well, it doesn't mean anything. That's to me, that just reveals that it's a, a blatantly political statement. It was he made the pledge and I think it was May and uh, the Dakotas and his energy speech on we're going to get out of Paris. And, and it was built around the premise, the premise, the vision, the cartoon of this being a black helicopter style, top down, the world wants to control us uh, entity. And and it's not that, but that's not going to prevent a post-truth president from implying otherwise. And so there, there's no logic to pulling out. And that's that's kind of like sophisticated. You know what I mean? So the only the only rationale is that it was a political statement. Um, the, the speech was laden with things like uh, that this will um, threaten the the U.S. with brownouts and blackouts that will paralyze U.S. industry from the rapid pace of renewables that would be required and the lack of uh, fossil fueled energy and everything about it. Uh, these these statements are all cartoonish. And they, the the one thing that's so missing in the speech. And he says he wants to maybe renegotiate the deal. And that, to me, implies that he he is accepting some sense of the reality of climate change. So he had all these uh, statements about the, the momentous consequences for the U.S. economy and jobs, but he had nothing in, not a single word about climate change. 
None. Right, but I mean, just the, the the idea of renegotiating an aspirational treaty is sort of preposterous. I mean, he's sort of saying, you know, I want a better deal, one of my favorite New York Post <laughs> headlines from the era of his first divorce, but it's not really, it, it's not really a conventional deal at all, right? I mean, you, I mean no. even if there were mechanics to renegotiate it, which maybe there are, maybe there aren't, you know, I want to renegotiate so that we aspire to less. Just no one's, it doesn't make any sense. No, I agree, and uh, that's why it feels like um, it feels kind of like what he did on the White House website this morning has a uh, has added a musical theme to a highlight <laughs> reel from his speech. It's a political campaign button that he just pushed, and he's even you know in a way the four year timeline benefits him. It it reminds me very much of what he did with uh, Obamacare. You know, do something something that at least in a cartoon, sort of in a simplistic way, says you can scratch that off your list. Well, okay, I've I've done, I've put out my executive order or I've got Congress to back me on X. And then even though it'll take years and no one really understands how it'll happen, you know, whatever comes in the place of Obamacare, it's the same thing here. Uh, You know, as a journalist exploring this, I've just uh, left with this sense of um, the job that was done was mainly to cross it off the list. Right. So it's, it's classic Trump uh, style in that, you know, shoot first and don't ask, answer questions later or ever if you possibly can. But I guess, you know, my question is, isn't it different from the Obamacare decision in that it doesn't in itself have any obvious consequences? I mean, Obamacare, repealing Obamacare has real hard consequences. You know, yeah, millions yeah. of people lose health insurance. Other things happen if you repeal. This is a law. And if you repeal it or replace it, things happen. In this case, what actually happens? I mean, his overall policy on climate obviously has all sorts of consequences, but we're mainly talking about political consequences, right? In terms of the climate, What's different in a year because he made this decision than if he'd made the decision to stay in? Well, the one thing that, that's different is that the flows of money to the uh, Green Climate Fund, which is the uh, this entity set up uh, under an agreement and the treaty process uh, six years ago to have rich world uh, help poor world uh, withstand climate impacts and build a better energy system. That money is not going to be coming forward from the United States. That could slow the money from other countries. That could very much throw sand in the gears of um, the process going forward, more so than even what he's doing with the um, the actual signature of the United States. That's one thing. Um, beyond that, the climate system operates on timescales that are fundamentally different than our political system and, and our are human systems. Um, the systems, the climate systems in motion, there's a lot of turbulent natural behavior in the system. And then there's this forcing we're pushing on it. And you can't quickly, you wouldn't see a, even if uh, Hillary had gotten in or some superpower came down and said, turn off every engine on the planet and power plant, the climate system won't notice that for a long time. There was this fight over Trump's math on how, how little a difference it'll make even to adhere to the agreement by 2100. And on on the general point, he's pretty correct. On the specifics, you definitely misplayed that study. But we can't expect the system to respond in scales that humans normally are eager to see action on. So Trump has decided to play the global villain on climate change. 
Is there a little bit of a corollary in that the Europeans have are walking around wearing these halos, but are not so angelic on climate either? I mean, they're they're willing to commit, obviously, to the goals of Paris and make various changes, but they're still burning a lot of fossil fuels, and and of course, so is China. Well, one of the elements in my piece that that went up this morning was. Uh, challenging this idea that there those who have been this, how many articles have you seen in the last couple of days saying uh, Europe and China assume the mantle, the green mantle of leadership, blah blah blah. And uh, what I did was sort of assess, as I have been tracking for a while, what what hap- what's really happening on the ground. And uh, Europe in February sent a delegation to meet with the Trump administration and had previously been meeting uh, a lot with uh, Obama about getting more natural gas from the United States to Europe to help Europe uh, cut its dependence on Putin's uh, gas pipelines. And natural gas is a fossil fuel that Europe has banned fracking itself, but it wants our fracked gas to help it run its power plants and and economy. And that's that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, uh, I just try, it gets under my skin (laughs) when I see and, and Germany, of course, is still heavily dependent on, on coal. Its use of coal has hardly budged downward despite um, more than 15 years of their push on renewables, which is kind of like frosting on a coal and oil cake. And uh, it's up to the media and whoever else to try to make sure that behind the rhetoric, we're, we're not making things oversimplified. This is not a Trump, no Trump kind of issue. Climate change is way bigger than one administration. This is not a binary thing. It's not a political problem for the most part. We, we'd like to think of it as being solved through political or diplomatic means, but the world has fundamental energy needs heading toward 9 billion people, uh, most of whom would prefer to be middle class rather than desperately poor. I just came back from India. I was there for a week. In rural India, where hundreds of millions of people are cooking their daily meals on, on dried dung and firewood, and believe me, they would like something different than that. Everywhere I've gone... The fuel they aspire to is uh, is LPG, the propane tank under under your gas grill if you live in suburbia. And there's plenty of propane, uh, some of which can come from the United States. But that energy gap is there. It's real. Um, and it largely dominates our concerns about climate. So, Andy, what can people do? I mean, people who are outraged about this, who are upset about this. I mean, obviously, the things the things people do personally to conserve energy, but the frustration is that no individual can obviously have any great impact on this. Should people be marching to not pull out of Paris, or should they be focusing on other aspects of the issue? Because for the reasons we're saying, this is kind of a symbolic thing. It's a leadership thing, but it's not an impact thing. Yeah, it's. I think... I guess people should recall that what Paris is is a framework for enshrining what countries feel they can do to move toward a lower carbon future and a, with more energy options for poor people. And that same framing can um, shape activities, aspirations at any level. I think uh, a town like the town I live in, uh, you have a footprint up here too. You know, you think about, well, how can we look assess our energy footprint, um, where are the gains, where are the gaps, what can we do to uh, do things differently, um, measuring things that we don't normally think about. One of the things that I'm most excited about is in education. There's, I've written about this uh, periodically, the way we teach. that Every school has a boiler room. No student hardly ever sees the boiler room. I've been to schools where they go on a boiler room tour, 
and they start to learn about life as a system. A school is a system. It's not just classrooms. It has inputs and outputs. And, and, and those things sound totally inadequate and totally kind of surfacey. But think about Paris. It's, it's, a, it's a framework for dis, dispersed, um, varied, diverse action, action based on capacities. And, and at every level, I think that can work. I, I will say over, again, over and over again that this, the idea that we can, uh, will be saved by some top-down magical you know, rule-making process is um, probably simplistic. Even when I was at the Vatican, maybe this is something to end on, uh, 2014, a couple of years before the encyclical, there was a meeting on sustainable humanity. And we had spoke for a week, and it was kind of like, presentations on climate and biodiversity and all this stuff. And this, I turned to this scientist next to me, really famous guy, 96 years old at the time, Walter Monk. And I said, Walter, what's going to get us through this? And he said, uh, and I'm thinking some technical, he'll say like fusion or geoengineering or something. And he said, it'll take a miracle of love and unselfishness. You know, he, this meeting about a largely science framed issue ended up concluding that uh, it's values and um, empathy and things like that that'll get us through. And those are things that anybody can work on. Except maybe the president of the United States. Yeah, well, yeah, except this one. (laughs) I've been speaking to Andrew Revkin. He's the senior climate reporter for ProPublica. Andy, thanks for joining me on the show today. Great to be with you. And that's our show for today. One correction from yesterday, when I was speaking to Tim O'Brien, I referred to the sanctions against Russia as having been imposed in response to Syria. That was wrong. They were imposed in response to Russia's occupation of Crimea. And before we go, are you following us on Twitter? You'll find pretty much everyone from the Trumpcast team on there. To keep up with the latest from us, be sure to follow our handle, at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Enjoy the weekend, and we'll be back next week with more Trumpcast. Does a bird uh, not use his wing uh, because the The president of Russia has not told him directly to do so. Uh, No, he uses his wing because because this is natural. This is the way the hacker uses his finger, his typing fingers on the keyboard. Uh, He does this because he is the the hacker. That is his identification. That is his identity in the world.